Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I would like to start, in fact, with the German artist Paul Klee, whose work forms part of the avant-garde section of the exhibition, because he commented to his fiancée Lily that my mind is clearest and freshest, and I often experience the most captivating moods, even moments of great joy, when I'm tending plants in my garden, making cuttings, potting, binding, pruning, transplanting, separating, etc., and when I feel like a plant myself. So we've got a lovely conspectus of all the things one does in a garden there. And we also have this intriguing comment about feeling like a plant myself. And you have on the screen there one of Clay's images of the plants he tended. And in the light of that comment, I think we can perhaps even see that white flower thrusting vigorously through the interlacing foliage as a kind of a self-portrait an image of the joyful artist at one and as one with his garden and its exuberant growth. Monet certainly photographed himself at Giverny, reflected in his pond, fusing himself with his garden, and he was reported by the critic Roger Marx to feel himself a tributary of nature a sensation that Marx used to explain Monet's Paysage d'eau, his water landscapes exhibition in 1909 at Durand-Ruel's gallery in Paris, and that included pictures such as these. These, as well as showing off Monet's new coloured scented water lilies, flowers recently developed by the grower La Tour Marliac, in turn planted the artistic seed for Monet's Grande Décoration, his monumental water lily panels, forming a permanent ensemble at the Orangerie in Paris. And I'm sure many of you uh, may well, in fact, have seen these. These uh, Grande Décoration can be regarded as embodying a highly personal, yet also deeply human, and I think really universal vision being given by Monet to the French state as a First World War memorial. The images of hope, of renewal in the wake of the carnage of 1914 to 18, when Monet had actually been able to hear the guns on the Somme as he painted at Giverny. And as those panels surround the viewer in the elliptical galleries of the Orangerie, they implicitly, of course, substitute life-giving oxygen for the mustard gas of the Western Front. Scientists in the 19th century had shown that animals, including humans, live by absorbing the oxygen released by plants, whilst the carbon dioxide exhaled by animals sustains the vegetable world. Monet's water lilies, willows, agapanthus, irises were in this sense not just inspiration, but actual means to respiration, the gift of life itself. Monet's great friend and fellow gardener, the writer Octave Mirbeau, there's the, the panels, all of them stretched out, and there's Mirbeau. Already in the 1890s, Mirbeau had called Monet's paintings respirable, breathable, because of their suggestion of fresh open air and even of floral scent. But in the Orangerie War Memorial, that aspect surely took on a further and deeply symbolic dimension. So, work by Clay, work by Monet, just two examples of the fascinating stimulus that modern, gardens, modern artists found in gardens. 
And today I want to explore the relationship between painting and planting with reference in particular to some of the flowers that became popular in late 19th and early 20th century horticulture. However, I want first to look a little more closely at the broader sense of affinity and even of union between artist and garden that comes through in Monet's comment about being nature's tributary and Clay's about feeling like a plant. Period critics, after all, firmly identified Monet with his garden. The garden is the man wrote Arsène Alexandre, for example, after visiting Giverny in 1901. And Alexandre went on to explain that the same man we find to be somewhat laconic and cold in Paris is completely different here, kindly, unperturbed, enthusiastic. When he has reason to come into the land of the boulevard, that's Paris, his smile is a little more than mocking, is little more than mocking and sarcastic. In his garden, amongst his flowers, he glows with benevolence. Well, there you are. Um, Mirbeau, uh, who is another enthusiastic visitor to Giverny, wrote of Monet in similar terms, in his shirt sleeves, his hands black with earth, his face haloed against the sun, happy to be sowing seeds in his garden, constantly dazzling with flowers. So again here, like Clay later, Monet is one with his garden, sowing seeds in it, but also imbued with its fertility, his hands the very colour of its soil. Mirbeau, meanwhile, called Pissarro and his family plantes humaines, human plants, people seemingly rooted in their rural environs at Eragny, near Rouen, where Pissarro and his wife Julie, whom you see here in, in the picture at the top right, um, where they kept a traditional peasant garden that combined utility, vegetables with beauty, the flowers that Julie, a former florist herself, grew in borders around the vegetable plot. And these flowers, um, maybe just make out there's some nice sunflowers. Uh, well, Mirbeau sent Pissarro and his wife Julie seeds and, and plants, including harpaliums and sunflowers. And here you can see sunflowers again in this picture by uh, Pissarro of Mirbeau's own garden at Les Dons, which was not far from Monet at Giverny. So there's this sharing, exchanging, uh, passing of plants from one person to another, and irises indeed came to uh, be planted in Pissarro's garden as a result of a gift from Monet, who provided some thoughtfully from Giverny. Meanwhile, then, in fin de siècle Austria, where Gustav Klimt painted traditional country gardens, including this wonderful example in the exhibition, we find the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal even calling a garden a silent biography, a place imprinted with the very life history of the person who had made or who enjoyed it. Well, such comments can on one level, I think, be seen as a reflection of Darwin's theory of evolution, which had shown how organisms respond and adapt to their environment. But on another level, we might see the garden is the man idea as an echo of traditional religious or philosophical metaphors of cultivating the soul or the mind. And on another level, again, I think Alexandre Mirbeau and Hofmannsthal all draw our attention with this kind of comment to the role of the modern artist as a kind of visionary, someone who reaches to 
deeper levels beyond appearance by identifying emotionally with the garden's growth. In this sense, we can't expect to understand the significance of an artist's particular choice of plants and flowers for planting and painting, or the significance of the way he or she lays them out in the garden, the garden's design, unless we also try to understand the artist's personality, experiences, beliefs, or ideals. We certainly have a sense of flowers as almost animate in Klimt's painting here of the Litzelberg Brewery Garden at Lake Attersee in Austria, where he gives each flower its own distinctive bearing, as if to project different facets of his own complex character. The tall white and red dahlias, these flowers, sort of rising, slightly aloof, stately, and then these uh, little flowers, the, the calendula and, and the petunias and daisies and so on, clustering around, jostling in the foreground, a bit like impatient children. Well, this may seem a fanciful reading, and I admit that, but Klimt loved flowers, and he told his viewers, I am fluent in neither the spoken nor the written word. Whoever wishes to know something about me should look at my pictures attentively and try from them to recognize what I am and what I intend. So he kind of gives us liberty to get in under the surface there and think about him through the garden. And I'm going to take that kind of idea that the garden is the man as, as a real nexus, a sort of starting point today. Uh, because I think we have to look at who the man was, the context of his, or indeed sometimes the woman's beliefs, and we've looked a little bit uh, about that so far, but I'm going to follow it further. And we need to think quite deeply, I think, about just who was in contact with who, what was going on in the wider world, and not just plant seeds and packets of seeds and all the horticultural side, important though that is, as I'll be showing. And I want to turn again to Monet, as we pursue this garden is the man idea. I'm going to talk quite a lot about him, bearing in mind the central role of Giverny. It was visited, after all, by quite a few other artists, from Bonnard to Lucie Darnay and Matisse, and it was widely described in both art and horticultural publications. And I want to home in on um, 1910 for a moment, because in that year, floods washed away dozens of Monet's prized flowers and plants at Giverny, and they devastated his pond, and we find Monet deeply affected on a real personal, emotional level. Alice, his second wife, wrote that he felt that everything is lost, things will never improve, we'll have to you know, sell up, leave Giverny. And then she added, it's sad to let oneself go like that, to see everything so black and nothing to be done. And it seems, interestingly, to have taken a fellow gardener, Octave Mirbeau, who is a very enthusiastic, keen, and knowledgeable amateur gardener, to lift Monet from this slough of despond. Mirbeau had actually come to the rescue already in 1893, when Monet's plans to make his pond had been vetoed by the locals. It was Mirbeau who stepped in and wrote to the regional prefect to get those objections overturned. And now, in 1910, he assured Monet that this fine garden, which was your joy and the joy of your life, you will see rise from the water. I will not say intact, but at least less damaged than you believe. And Monet now seems to recognize that the floods had actually created an opportunity to enlarge his pond 
enabling even greater space between his groups of water lilies to continue, in fact, a process he'd begun when he'd remodeled the pond a bit in 1901-2. And that change produced the water garden we see today, where the reflections of the clouds, the sky, sunrise, sunset, mingle with those of the surrounding willows and foliage, and the whole is punctuated at intervals by the glowing colors of the water lilies, red, yellow, pink, sometimes blue. Blue water lilies were the hardest of all to grow. And there's a few here in this picture in the exhibition. Um, they were exotic, tender species, and they needed to be wintered under cover. So Monet had quite a struggle with them. Anyway, um, this replanted larger pond from 1910 then, with its new embrace of worlds beyond itself, of the very heavens above as well as the surroundings, created, in effect, the motif that inspired the Grande Décoration at the Orangerie with their lilies amidst, so to speak, the clouds and the willows. So, you know, you've got the lilies there, but they're amongst this reflective surface with quite large space between one clump and another then. And here again, it's all kind of muddled and merged with the sunset and the purple sky of evening and these little bright patches of colour from the water lilies then spotted through it and then the irises in the foreground and the, the way that the brushstrokes sort of weave one bit into another, uh, completely fascinating. And as I say, it's this replanted larger pond born of the disaster, midwife of Mirbeau then to get it into being, that, that provides that impetus. The conception Monet has of the pond as he rebuilds it in 1910 was probably influenced by his admiration for Japanese prints because these often evoke the presence of elements beyond the picture frame. And here, here's a nice example where you have um, a, a landscape and there's the moon reflected from the sky, but you don't see the moon in the sky, you see the moon in the water. And that evocation of something beyond the picture frame, whether it's the moon, whether it's Mount Fuji, very often found in Japanese prints, the reflection or the shadow does the work of telling you it's there. In Edmond de Goncourt's famous book on Japanese prints, furthermore, which Monet had in his library, such effects were explicitly associated with feeling and emotion. And de Goncourt describes, for example, a print by Hokusai of a man who's surprised and enchanted, as he puts it, on catching sight of Mount Fuji in reflection in the bowl of water he's just about to drink. There's certainly a kind of extravagance, even excess, phenomena associated with strong emotion. I think, in Monet's reaching out to the sky as well as the land via reflection. And he said he wanted his water lily pictures to produce the effect of an endless hole, of a watery surface with no horizon and no shore. And we might compare the comment here to that by Klimt's musical colleague, Gustav Mahler, at this time, that a symphony should be like the world, it must embrace everything. So, if we view the garden as a silent biography, using that phrase from Klimt's contemporary Hoffmannsthal, then those orangerie panels born of Monet's triumph over his despair at the 1910 flooding are logically Monet's gift of himself to France to defy the war that had taken the lives of so many. 
There were, of course, many other factors involved in Monet's inspiration from his garden at Giverny, not least the quest for solace after the death of his second wife, Alice, in 1911, and the death of friends such as the sculptor Rodin, who died in 1917. It was in the grounds of Rodin's home Sorry, there's a few more um, water lilies and things. Uh, so, in the grounds of Rodin's home in Paris, the Hotel Biron, that Monet first considered locating his water lily murals in a circular purpose-made pavilion. So, imagine that pavilion um, somewhere there amidst Rodin's sculptures, and imagine then, just kind of over the hedge fence or something, um, the the dome of the Invalide, you've got this modern pavilion, a, a circular shaped thing, and then the grand uh, memorial to the great military dead of France, uh, kind of next door. Um, very suggestive, very intriguing. And in terms of the particular flowers and plants in the modern garden, as portrayed by Monet in his murals for the pavilion, and their meaning for the modern artist, Monet's work for this um, Rodin scheme, so to speak, is really, I think, richly revealing. The Agapanthus triptych in the exhibition here was painted for this planned Hotel Biron scheme, and it would have hung there beside other panels devoted to key plants in Monet's garden, um, willows, water lilies, and irises, and then the ensemble, all these panels, would have been crowned with long horizontal panels showing wisteria. So there's one of the panels probably, well, definitely, we think, for the Hotel Biron scheme, which shows the water lilies. And then down below, you've got one where you've got the willows and the irises and the water lilies. And then the whole lot would have been crowned by long panels. And you have to think of these two wisteria ones kind of joined together, making a long panel. And uh, then there's just a photo showing you Monet's original <laughs> wisteria in the garden and him walking across the bridge that it grew on with um, Clemenceau and Alice Butler uh, and one of the other um, people at Giverny. So um, think of this. Uh, the critic, Mark Elder, described walking across the bridge at Giverny as like walking through a tube of vanilla because of the powerful scent that all that wisteria created. And then think of the fact that wisteria is traditionally a symbol of friendship and agapanthus, topic of one of the other panels for the Hotel Biron Rona scheme, agapanthus is named after the Greek word agape, brotherly love, and we can begin to see that this whole scheme of murals would have been really um, a fairly open tribute to Rodin, his friend, his brother in art, uh, someone with whom he had a joint exhibition back in 1889 and whom he deeply admired. So Monet's imagery of his pond then capturing surface, reflection, depth all at once is seizing in one dimension the painted canvas, the multiple dimensions that uh, Rodin sought to capture in sculpture. Well, in the event, the pavilion for Rodin's garden proved too difficult to construct and Monet settled for the offer made by the French state of the two elliptical spaces in the orangerie that house his panels today. And there they are at the, um, at the time of their unveiling by Clemenceau, who had been so important in getting the gift uh, processed and accepted by the state. 
It's when Monet adapted his scheme to the new orangerie spaces that he seems to have dropped the focus on a particular plant for each section, agapanthus, water lily, willows, and so on, that had characterized the intended Hotel Biron scheme. And instead, he seems to have developed that more integrative approach here, where you see the plants and the flowers uniting with the water, light, and reflections to weave this all-embracing harmony with these wonderful brush strokes that weave in uh, uniting the one part to the other. And that's how the agapanthus flowers originally visible in the panels in the exhibition here came to be painted out with reflected sky and foliage taking their place. And then Monet seems to have felt, well, that panel just wouldn't work after all in the orangery. So he never actually used those as part of the scheme there. And they remained in his studio. The sparks of yellow, pink, and red, and even blue, that flicker into life at dawn or glow at sunset in the orangery murals are nonetheless one of the most eloquent witnesses to the inspiration of modern horticulture for modern art. For, as I've mentioned, the colored scented water lilies they represent were new, inherently modern flowers, the result of crossing native white and exotic colored water lilies. Darwin had been one of the first to propose such water lily crosses, and agapanthus and irises had similarly been bred to create new varieties. So they're all really quite modern flowers that are featuring in Monet's planting of his pond at Giverny. Before we go on to look at these and other horticultural inventions and developments, I think um, we need to keep really firmly in fo focus this um, kind of dialogue connecting past and future, visible and invisible in symbolic ways that we've begun to see through what I've said so far. The progress of horticulture, in other words, is an essential part of the larger story of the artist and the garden as symbiotic partners, even as one of the same that I've been sketching out so far, and that involves the artist's character and ideals. So if you'll forgive me, I'd like to take a look just a little further at this personal symbolic dimension of painting and planting before we go on to pursue the seed catalogues and the horticultural journals, the sort of thing you illustrate here, uh, I have illustrated here. Kayabot, after all, Monet's great buddy in matters horticultural, whom he and Mirbeau loved to meet for visits to horticultural exhibitions or to share gardening tips, and this is Kaibot in his garden on the Seine at Petit Genevier. Kaibot commented just a few minutes, few moments, few months, I should say, before his untimely death in 1894, that you will see my garden in flower in the spring. And Monet repeated those exact same words in turn before his own death in 1926 even as he waited, in fact, for the delivery of great quantities of rare lilies that he'd ordered from Japan to plant in his garden at Giverny. So in this sense, planting, like painting the results, is a way to defy mortality itself, put faith in the future, dedicate your vision to generations yet unborn. And as I've sort of suggested, I think this involves a degree of extravagance, passion, even recklessness, even perhaps a sort of slight madness, cluster of ideas that I've begun to mention and that I'll be picking up later. But I want to take you back to Germany next, where we started with clay, because the passions of the modern garden here involved some very intriguing links with France. 
The garden begun at Wannsee near Berlin in 1909 by the German impressionist Max Liebermann, for example, that you see here, both in a photograph at the top and a painting by Liebermann, was devised with advice from Alfred Lichtwach, the innovative garden designer and Francophile director of the Hamburg Art Gallery. And Lichtwach recommended that a garden should be built around what he called a favorite flower, which should form the basis for its scale and design. He cited the geranium as just such a flower, a flower whose vibration against green grass Lichtwach had personally admired in the garden of the French writer Edmond de Goncourt at Auteuil, Goncourt who'd written that book that I quoted from about Japanese prints. And it was, in fact, in France, at the hands of the great Nancy grower, uh, Victor Lemoine, that one of the most brilliant red hybrid geraniums, properly known as pelagoniums, the Gloire de Nancy, had come into being in 1866. This was described in the horticultural press as minium red. In other words, the same color as the minium or red lead used to prevent iron from rusting. It was a sort of paint you put over the iron. Well, de Goncourt, interestingly, was a friend both of Monet and of Mirbeau, and in an important book of 1881 had called his Auteuil garden a painter's garden on account of its carefully co chosen contrasts and nuances of color, that vibration of red against green, for example, that Lichtwach was so struck by when he visited. But we may also note that de Goncourt wrote of his painter's garden in terms of a passionate relationship, saying that it seizes you, keeps you, retains you. In this formulation, the garden reaches out with an action so powerful that it actually takes control of its maker in a way that's even violent. And de Goncourt certainly described the, quote, intense, brutal, decimating note of his geraniums. And since he called them flowers which seem painted with minium, that red lead thing, they were probably Gloire de Nancy, because Gloire de Nancy was described as minium red. But before we explore the implications of this kind of extravagance, violence even, let's just for the moment continue with Lichtwach's ideal of building a garden round a favorite flower. For what do we find at the center of Liebermann's garden here in this terrace? There you see it in the photo with Liebermann seated looking down over the terrace. Um, what do we find there? But geraniums, that favorite flower that Lichtwach named as, as a thing you could build a garden around. And their red vibrates against the green grass, just as in de Goncourt's garden, as recorded by Lichtwach. We can see why Liebermann wrote appreciatively to Lichtwach that his Wannsee garden was, in large part, your creation. Well, um, <laughs> true to a certain extent, but I think it would be a mistake to merely identify Wannsee with Lichtwach. For that view from the terrace behind um, Liebermann's house, you have to think of the terrace kind of here, and then you get Liebermann uh, seated on it, and then you get the, the geraniums, then you get the lawn, and the view then right down to the bottom of the garden. Um, that view uh, takes your eye to the part of the garden adjoining Lake Wannsee, where Liebermann constructed a piazzetta a small space for socializing with friends. And you can see it sort of slightly more clearly here. So there's the bottom of the garden, the lake, the piazzetta's there, there's a boat on the lake. Um, 
So there you are. And that spot at the bottom there that you see Lieberman looking down towards in that photograph is one that Lieberman, in his very interesting correspondence with Lichtwag, called Pure Faust Two, Pure Faust Part Two, a highly revealing analogy. In Goethe's famous play, Faust reclaims territory from the waters of the sea to make a paradisal land, as he calls it, and Liebermann's Piazzetta, similarly formed at the edge of Lake Wannsee, right at the focal point of his favorite view, down over his favorite flower, geraniums and grass, was implicitly, in turn, his ideal world or personal paradise, where the shimmer of the sunlight on the water of the lake, just there, in a sense, resolves that conflict of red versus green, because red and green are complementary colors in the geraniums against the lawn. It's as though in that focal dazzling reflection on the lake, the colors of the prism that are separated out in the red geraniums and green lawn are brought back together in the harmony of light. Well, Bonnard and Vuillard visited Liebermann at Wannsee in 1913 and were reportedly enchanted in turn, after the horror of the First World War, Liebermann turned to his garden as refuge and solace, and this picture here indeed is painted at that time. We can think of its view to the lake as a German counterpart to Monet's vision at the Orangerie of his shimmering pond as an emblem of renewal after the First World War. Meanwhile, however, in 1911, Liebermann resigned as president of the Berlin Secession after a bitter exchange with a young upstart called Emil Nolder. And the modern art of Nolder, of course, leads us ultimately to the symbolic form and color of artists such as Clay, Kandinsky, and Kandinsky's wife, wife Gabriela Munter. But I think the work of these younger artists surely involves essentially the same sense of personal identification with the garden that resonates so vividly already through Liebermann's fascinating correspondence with Lichtwag as they plot the layout of his garden at Wannsee and discuss its subtle balance of the wild and the cultivated. After all, here is the grove of wild birch trees that Liebermann retained on the site. He kept this grove that was already growing on the plot of land, photograph of it and painting of it there. And he then created these formal hedged garden rooms on the other side of the garden, a kind of formal balance to the wildness of the birch trees. And these included an intimate rose bower that he planted to connect the garden with the house as an extension of its private space. And it was in that rose bower that Liebermann often walked and sat with his family and granddaughter. We can see its intimate protective space as a reinvention not only of the sacred rose garden of the Madonna, but perhaps of the garden filled with roses, including the latest varieties from England, whose annual coming into bloom forms the symbolic reference point in the narrator's life in Adalbert Stifter's 1857 novel, Der The Indian Summer. This was a novel that was much read in 19th and early 20th century Germany, and it's a Bildungsroman, that is a story dealing with a character's formative years. So back we come really to the garden is the man idea. Nolder 
fell in love with gardens when he saw those on the um, Danish island of Als, a kind of traditional garden that Lichtwart also admired. And we may also note that Nolder planted his eventual garden at Zebul in North Germany in 1927 in a way that literally spelt out his love for his wife, Arda. And you can see there the paths um, trace an A and an E, and there's Arda and uh, Emil walking along one of those paths with the house in the background and all the flowers around about. Um, meanwhile, painting uh, his own gardens at Als and then in turn at Tondern in Denmark, Nolder felt himself drawn, he said, as if magnetically to the colour of the flowers, so that suddenly I was painting the blossoming colours of the flowers and the purity of these colours, I loved them so very much. Passion, here again but also, I think, in the word magnetic, that sense we already met in de Goncourt and in Gen in Bonnard's and Vuillard's enchantment at Vanze of the garden seizing or taking control of its makers or visitors. And we can surely recognize, too, in Nolder's ecstasy at his flowers, his keen interest in the writings of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who had presented the earth as a blooming garden, renewing spirit and body, and thereby enabling man to reach joyfully beyond himself in his influential text of 1883 to 91, Also sprach Zarathustra. In this, the prophet Zarathustra awakes from convalescence in a dark cave to find that the world awaits him, as he puts it, like a garden its colors, scents, and tastes revealing Earth's Garten Gluck, garden happiness. Fascinating phrase, isn't it? The joyous garden of the Earth is for Nietzsche a liberating Dionysian entity, far greater than the rational and merely political world, and it's a place he feels will reunite mankind with nature as a kind of human plant or tree. Now, Mirbeau, getting back to France, Monet's friend Mirbeau, the writer, the fellow gardener, Mirbeau admired Nietzsche, and Mirbeau uses this very same image of emerging from a cave to light, sensory fullness, and harmony with nature, already in describing in 1891 the effect of Pissarro's art. You don't normally associate Pissarro and Nietzsche, but I think we can. Um, via Mirbeau. I think we can perhaps see the colourful flowers and airy spaciousness of Pissarro's series of paintings the following year, 1892, just after um, Mirbeau's review about Pissarro being, you know, someone who shows us the light after the cave. I think we can see this almost as a kind of echo, um, or at least it's parallel with what Mirbeau is saying about um, Nietzsche and his vision and the metaphor he's borrowing from Nietzsche to describe Pissarro's art. So you've got the sun, oops, sorry, got the sunflowers there, these lovely flowers that turn to the light. You've got the reflection of the sky in the river Seine and then the luminous sky rising above and the flowers are kind of threshold to that liberating view of, of brightness and airiness. Uh, this splendid garden that Mirbeau kept at Les Danses in the Eure is one that he cultivated with much um, skill, attention, and uh, groove plants there that he then sent by train to Monet at Giverny or simply took in person, sent them also to Pissarro, as I've mentioned, 
And uh, indeed, if we turn to the picture in the exhibition by um, Pissarro of the garden of Mirbeau at Les Dons, um, there you have uh, a figure, a um, little child, interestingly, with golden hair echoing the, the yellow of the flowers, maybe sunflowers here again. Uh, it's very much in tune with that metaphor of the human plant that uh, Nietzsche uses, that Mirbeau also uses, uh, where the person comes to fulfillment in the garden of the earth, uh, influenced by its Gartengluck, its uh, garden happiness, and becomes like a human plant. Well, Matisse certainly read Nietzsche and seems to suggest a state of primal ecstasy like Zarathustra's in his images of a private garden in Morocco after refreshing spring rain. This is one of them. It's called Palm Leaf Tangier and it's in the exhibition. And go and have a look at it because with the almost feverish brushwork and the, the way that the colours sort of burst from the surface, we even find lines scored sort of energetically, almost as a palpable expression of Nietzsche's energy in painting it lines scored with the end of the brush into the surface of the paint. And Matisse recalled that he did this picture, as he puts it, in a burst of spontaneous creation like a flame, in the immediate wake of a ride on horseback through a valley of wild flowers, an experience he likened to the paradise of receiving his first paint box as a child. Once again, the garden and the man, even the garden and the child, are here entwined and in a context of high emotion. Well, I've gone on long enough, I think, about the modern garden as an expression of the life of the man and or woman who makes or uses it, and in turn, part of a desire for a lost or a better world that involves passion, emotion, even a kind of irresistible hold over the individual. And we might just remember, before we move on, that Monet called his paintings of water and reflections at Giverny an obsession. However, I do want now to get down to the individual plants and flowers and their links with those themes of passion, extravagance, success, obsession. We've seen something of water lilies, geraniums, roses, irises, sunflowers, but I think to understand their inspiration fully, we need to look briefly at what was called the great horticultural movement, the expansion of interest in horticulture in the 19th and early 20th centuries that vastly expanded the range of plants and flowers at the gardener's disposal, kind of put a huge excess of plants and flowers at the gardener's disposal, and that also made gardeners, gardens integral to modern life. There was, of course, already centuries-old tradition of small-scale, useful horticulture, vegetable gardening, but making gardening garden for pleasure, putting plants in it for decoration, those were new things coming about as social change gave power to the self-made middle classes and enabling uh, gardens to become a way to reconnect with nature, places to socialise also, to bring up children in the context, of course, of the great industrial age. Cities are expanding at an unprecedented rate. The old agricultural and rural economy is being transformed into our modern one based on commerce and industry. So Matisse's image of his family at leisure in their garden at Ici les Moulineurs near Paris there, uh, is a reflection of that development, which, of course, is first of all painted by the Impressionists. And there's a Monet example at the bottom just to, to show you that. 
We can see Matisse's imagery of the family garden here as an implicit metaphor of renewal too, however, after the First World War, just as the family garden shown by Monet there in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War in France had acquired symbolic overtones as the nation's soil in bloom again, nurturing a new generation. Matisse had seen at first hand the killing fields of Normandy in the First World War and had described them as the death of the earth itself, a landscape of the last judgment, kind of Nietzschean idea of the earth as, as a, an organic, blooming, vibrant, uh, renewing thing which had been killed by the First World War. So images like this then bring that earth back to life after the, the war. The phenomenon of the artist gardener, such as Monet at Argenteuil at the bottom, Matisse at Ici les Moulineurs, essentially came into being in the 19th century with this new popular passion for horticulture I've been just briefly sketching out. And today, social scientists, of course, speak of gardens as attachment environments places with which we have a special relationship because we have personally planted them or because they give us quality experience. And I would suggest that the artist's garden is a kind of further layer to that. You've got a special relationship to the garden, not just because you've made it, but because you are painting it also. And then Kayabots and Monet's sense of gardening as a means to defy death itself or the notion that the garden is the man, or in Nietzsche's terms, the way to attain a heightened form of being, all these are a kind of further step beyond, again, the ultimate logic of that attachment environment. So then, what happens in terms of individual flowers in all of this? Well, by the 1870s, when Monet began to plant and to paint his first artist's garden at Argenteuil here, the flowers available to gardeners were already so complex and varied that they were seen by many as actually works of art in themselves. By the 1890s, Mirbeau actually called the horticulturalists artists from whom he ordered the splendid roses, irises, dahlias, chrysanthemums, and many other plants that he grew in his gardens at Les Dons and then in another place again at Poissy and which he gave Monet, Pissarro, Caillebotte, and others. Um, some of Mirbeau's flowers, we might note, he actually obtained from British growers, and he wrote a letter to Edmond de Goncourt in 1891 in which he recommended Canel and, Swan and Sons of Swanley in Kent as the first above all, as he puts it, amongst commercial seedsmen. And these are some of Canel's dahlias that we see illustrated here in L'Illustration Horticole, one of the new horticultural journals that sprang into profusion uh, uh, in tandem with the great horticultural movement of the 19th century. And since Mirbeau passed some of his new dahlias onto Monet, it seems fair to assume that some of Monet's specimens actually derived from Canel's of Swanley in Kent. Well, both Monet and Matisse eagerly devoured the lavishly illustrated, often lavishly illustrated anyway, seed catalogues that were issued by the commercial growers, and Monet also subscribed to horticultural journals like this. These seed catalogues and the journals typically promoted flowers as decoration. That word keeps popping up all the time in their, their writing, their, their articles, texts. And this was an idea that Matisse's father, who was an old-fashioned agricultural seed merchant, 
simply couldn't understand. He asked his son, why not grow something useful like potatoes? But the flower as decoration, I think, is clearly as relevant to um, Matisse's art, you know, something like that picture there, as to Monet's creation of his Grande Décoration, or Caillebotte's inspiration from his greenhouse orchids for his decorative door panels. Sorry, this is the bit where I got these slides in the wrong order, and I think I still haven't got them right. Um, yes, decoration, Caillebotte making his greenhouse orchids the motif for door panels for his home, and then there's a seed catalogue, Villemorin's, just to give you a nice little picture to go with this sort of uh, interest in the seed catalogues that Monet and Matisse had. So you get the general idea. Seeds, lots of plants, the whole lot being seen as art, uh, horticulturalists as artists, art coming together with horticulture in the very plants and flowers themselves that are found in the modern garden. And this situation is really the result of three key developments in the 19th century in the science and technology of horticulture. Hybridization, the invention of ward cases for transporting plants from overseas, and the advent of greenhouses. So let's just take these quickly one by one. Mirbeau could call horticulturalists artists and even refer to his own gardener as an artist because hybridization had unleashed a veritable frenzy of creative invention in the garden. The science of crossing one species with another, hybridization, to create new species and varieties then within species, all that developed in the 19th century from the experiments of the French grower Charles Noudin, the Austrian monk Gregor Mendel, and not least Charles Darwin. Mirbeau was actually once one of the most eager of hybridizers himself, and developed new varieties, especially of chrysanthemums and dahlias, and wrote accounts of the new hybrid orchids he created as well, developed. So the new chrysanthemum colors that you can see there in this period journal illustration from you know, new chrysanthemums, nice new hybrids. Um, the colors that these were now emerging in were explicitly described as modern in the horticultural press. This is a particularly poetic description of some of them, old gold, old pink, copper cauldron, and, and so on. And it's these colors that Monet is clearly showing in some of his evocative images of chrysanthemum heads at Giverny, like the one on the right there. We may also note that seedsmen and growers often marketed their new flowers in color series, a series of red dahlias, a series of pink water lilies, etc. And Chevreuil, the great 19th century chemist and color theorist, had used the term series in relation to floral color. He grew dahlias in little kind of complicated patterns in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, where he was um, in, in the professor in the Museum of, Horticult of um, Natural Sciences. And so Ceres was embedded in horticultural discourse already then from the 1830s, 40s. And so in this sense, I think we can see Monet's serial practice at Giverny painting series of his garden subjects there as the ultimate merger, really, of horticulture and art. Well then, ward cases, uh, the second great horticultural development I mentioned, these were special sealed glass boxes named after their English inventor in the 1820s, the doctor, Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward. There's one of them there. 
and uh, they enabled not just seeds but living plants to be imported from far-flung far corners of the earth. So you got the plant, you dug it up, took it back home. Uh, the invention of plate glass, which gave rise to the invention in turn of the greenhouse, the glass house, my third development in 19th century horticultural technology, uh, enabled these new plants then to be kept through the winter and hybridized with hardy or native species. Both Monet and Caillebotte had splendid glass houses, and there's Caillebotte looking at some of his flowers in his glass house. The new coloured and scented water lilies with which Latour Marliac wowed the world at the 1889 Paris Universal Exhibition were, meanwhile, as I've mentioned, created by crossing native with exotic species. So, already by 18, 1891, even before Latour Marliac's display in the Universal Exhibition inspired Monet to construct his pond, Monet was engaged in what Mirbeau called a fury of horticulture at Giverny. A fury. Here again, that theme of extravagant success and high emotion. Monet himself wrote that he was deep in plantations and removals of all sorts, and his letters of the 1890s show him visiting the horticultural exhibitions in Paris with Caillebotte and Mirbeau and marvelling at their contents, harrying the horticulturalists and seedsmen, pestering his friends for news of the latest dahlias and chrysanthemums. It's a wonderful kind of cascade of gardening letters around about 1890, 91, 92, 93. Mirbeau, meanwhile, published an astonishing account in March 1891 of what was already in flower at Giverny even before Monet began all this, that emphasizes the sheer abundance, extravagance perhaps, of Monet's horticulture. I'm referring a lot to Mirbeau, but because he was an eager gardener, he's a great guide to the botanical nitty-gritty of Monet's garden. In that 1891 article, Mirbeau describes a virtual kind of unstoppable flood of flowers at Giverny, omnicolored nasturtiums, saffron-hued eschultzias, reaching from the either side of the path in blinding cascades, poppies surging forwards in an astonishing melee of colours and orgy of bright tones, right through to the harpaliums pouring forth the endless gold of their inexhaustible flowering in autumn. So, but those letters at this time by Monet show he, he wanted still more flowers. He's already got all this lot that Mirbeau's describing, but he wants new ones, more ones, more of them, and especially new and rare ones. And here is one of his first paintings at Giverny, dating already from 1887, showing an absolute mass of red and pink peonies. There are rows and rows of them by the look of it, that he's already cultivating under the shade of special straw awnings. Now, these are almost certainly, because of those awnings, tree peonies, a kind of shrub type peony, typically with very large and beautiful flowers, sometimes scented, that had been introduced in the late 18th century to the West from China and Japan. And then, by the late 19th century, they were being extensively hybridized to produce choice varieties. And there's just an example of Guillaume Tell, a tree peony put on the market in 1887, same year as Monet's picture by um, Victor Lemoine, the chap who um, created the uh, lovely geranium, that, uh, the, the Gloire de Nancy. Um, this kind of peony, the tree peony, dries out if it's not given partial shade. And in China and Japan, therefore, it's traditionally grown with a little straw hat, which also protects it from the snow 
So you can just make out these little straw hats in a modern Japanese peony garden. So that's what Monet is kind of emulating here with these straw awnings. A letter Monet wrote to his head gardener, Felix Breuil, in 1900 instructs specifically that should the Japanese peonies arrive, plant them immediately if weather permits, taking care initially to protect buds from the cold as much as from the heat of the sun. Viverny's geographical situation means that a day in early summer can have remarkable extremes from frost at dawn to hot sun in the afternoon. And this is one of the interesting things that we found out actually doing the exhibition, talking to James Priest, the gardener at Giverny nowadays, he confirmed you know, that was why they were vulnerable both to extremes uh, of heat and of um, warmth uh, of, and of cold at Giverny in the uh, late spring, early summer. Peonies, tree peonies, however, also grow lanky if they don't get just the right shade. So Monet is clearly doing his very best here to make sure they don't grow lanky, that they have this wonderful concentrated punch of colour and, of course, implicitly perfume because they're scented, as I mentioned. And in turn, here's his mature collection of tree peonies. You can just make them out. There's a few of them there around near the pond. He planted them under the trees there, or at least inside the trees, so they benefited from the shade of the trees, and he didn't need these complicated straw awnings anymore. And this lot that you see here in the photograph um, probably includes the gift of Japanese tree peonies that Monet received from the Mikado's garden in Japan in 1908. Well, um, I'm coming back to the peonies. There's one of them probably just there, sort of splash of red that leaps out of the picture. If you go and look at it in the exhibition, you'll see how that punch of colour's coming forward. Um, but I just want for a moment to just move slightly sideways because there are an awful lot of photos of artists gardening. There's a nice little row of them. But intriguingly few paintings of artists gardening even allowing for the fact that Monet eventually employed six gardeners to do the work for him at Giverny. One of the few paintings of a, an artist gardener was produced by Manet in 1873 of Monet tending his first garden at Argenteuil as his family relaxed beneath the tree there. There's Monet bending down, doing something with a red flower, and there's the watering can at the ready. Uh, we might also perhaps interpret Bonnard's picture of his terrace at Vernonet across the Seine from Monet at Giverny as a self-portrait, a guess perhaps, but maybe not so um, wild a guess. Uh, this figure, obviously a tall figure by the look of it, even though he's bending down, uh, sun catching his hair, he's holding a plant, doing something with it, and the woman bending over in the sun, doing something with it as well, maybe a self-portrait. Um, and we might... I think probably reached the conclusion that this is Kandinsky um, doing something in the garden as painted by his wife, um, Gabriela Munter. But apart from these, there are really not many pictures at all of artists gardening, not many paintings of artists gardening. But if we view the garden as the man, I think we can see a picture like this of Monet's carefully grown tree peonies as in effect a self-portrait just like Clay's picture of the white blossom that I started with, or Nolder's of irises in his garden at Alce. It's a celebration of Monet's pride in his horticultural prowess, and as such, 
the logical sequel to images like this, um, the wonderful picture he did of his garden at Argenteuil in 1873 with in the foreground, bang in the foreground, a pot, there's detail of it, containing this lovely red flower, which uh, the botanist David Mitchell has identified for me as um, very likely, almost certainly, an epiphyllum kind of fancy Mexican cactus thing, which had been introduced earlier in the 19th century. Now, uh, Monet's gardening and, and putting one in a pot. And this picture is clearly an expression of Monet's pride, not just as father and husband, that's his son there, that's his wife there, but also as gardener. And he indeed puts his signature, as you can see, slap in front of it to kind of say, I am a skilled gardener. Well. Monet's peony picture then, that I've just been on about for a bit, um, is really a successor, I think, to this kind of image. Also, perhaps to uh, these, uh, Monet's picture of his uh, dahlias in the garden at Argenteuil. And these include red dahlias, which um, David Mitchell has suggested are almost certainly dahlia raisii, uh, the, the original dahlia that gave rise in the late 19th century to the hybridized cactus dahlias that became all the rage, kind of double-get dahlias. And uh, here's Monet then painting that batch of dahlias, probably anyway, in the picture by Renoir, the famous picture. And in that picture, these pale pink tall dahlias, which also appear a bit in here, are probably yet another kind of bang-up-to-date dahlia, um, the pinky-white imperial dahlia. This had been known for some time, but in the early 1870s, at this point, it's only just been successfully grown in northern France. It had been grown in the southern part of France before now, but only really from the 1870s in the north, through a great deal of horticultural care. You've got to put sort of mulch around it and do all sorts of fancy things um, to get it to grow successfully. So we can perhaps, just comparing these two pictures, um, Renoir's Monet painting, Monet's of the, the garden itself, um, we can perhaps explain the discrepancy between these two, where the dahlias just flood unrestrainedly across the garden there, and yet here are contained behind a fence, almost as though they're in the neighbor's garden. We can perhaps explain that discrepancy. Um, if we remember that Renoir argued that the artist's ideal should be irregularity, the glorious diversity of nature where no two leaves are ever the same. Irregularity, Renoir said, could only be seen by contrast with regularity. So the geometry of the fence there is pointing up the profusion of the dahlias and in turn, therefore, Monet's skills as a gardener as well as an artist. We might even see them as symbolic, these dahlias, because like chrysanthemums, they were known as republican flowers, having been introduced to France in 1789, the year of the French Revolution. And the Impressionists were, broadly speaking, republican in their sympathies. Um, I'm running a little bit late. Shall I go on? Can you, if you need to get up and disappear, I won't be the least bit offended, please. Just do so. <laughs> um, so Renoir certainly took up dahlia growing as well, and it's rather tempting. Oh, where's Renoir gone? Bother. Sorry, I think I forgot to put him in. There's a nice picture in the exhibition showing Renoir's garden with some dahlias. Um, and the way Renoir plants those and they kind of spill over into our space makes you think again of Goncourt's comment about a garden seizing you and keeping you and retaining you. He certainly commented, Renoir, that he hated gardens that were too trimmed up, 
and he likened his own semi-wild garden in Montmartre to Le Paradou, the abandoned rose-filled estate, a kind of paradise or primal garden, described by Emile Zola as the setting in one of his novels, La Faute de l'Abbé Mouret, for an illicit love affair. And Van Gogh also was inspired by that notion of Le Paradou, the rambling, unkept garden. He uh, likened the garden of the asylum at Saint-Rémy to it and delighted in capturing its free growth. We might even see something like Kyabots with the, the dahlias plonk in the foreground spilling into our space as a sort of reflection, perhaps, of this fascination with Paradou-style profusion. Um, Monet, certainly later... Uh, Oops, oh, there's the Renoir, sorry. There we are, Renoir's garden with the dahlias spilling in our to, into our space. Um, Van Gogh, the asylum undergrowth in Saint-Rémy, again, kind of flooding into our space, invading our space. And then Monet um, doing something similar with his roses, which were described by visitors as a sort of almost an orgy of roses. And Lucidane, he certainly grew roses in a similar way there you are, again, those were called an orgy of roses too. So again, this theme of extravagance, theme of excess that I've been talking about. And to try and understand that in, in sort of last few minutes, I want to return to Monet's peonies, because peonies were flowers that the great British horticulturalist William Robinson had characterized as perfect for the wild garden. So there we are. Peonies were flowers that you could plant, as Robinson recommended, in sort of colonies, drifts, even cascades. And that sort of planting, Robinson thought, was infinitely superior to the strictly organized carpet bedding of so many Victorian gardens and of the parks and, house and, and gardens of housemen in Paris. Robinson published this ideal in his book called The Wild Garden in 1870, and that went through numerous editions, and it clearly harmonizes with Renoir's ideal of irregularity and Monet's free planting of his tree peonies by his pond. Robinson also specifically identified water lilies, irises, and wisteria, all key flowers at Giverny, as plants for the wild garden, and conversely, he called his own wild plantings pictures. So, Robinson's ideas reached far and wide. Lichtwart promoted them in Germany. French horticultural journals carried articles on Le Jardin Sauvage, the wild garden, and um, there's a few of those wild garden plants at Giverny, but equally, Bonnard calls his garden a wild garden. And there are American gardens we can look to as well, something like um, Child Hassam's view of the poet Celia Thaxter's garden with the poppies growing in a wild format, and even the arrangement of pot plants round in um, Sorolia's portrait of Tiffany in Long Island uh, in his garden, this massive kind of colony of, of flowers. The French horticulturalist Henri Villemorin, meanwhile, corresponded with Robinson and sent him quantities of plants for his garden in Sussex. Now, Monet already knew Villemorin in 1884. He mentioned seeing him on the Riviera, south of France then. But that visit to the Riviera by Monet, which was his first to the south, must, I think, itself have been key to the extravagant profusion of Monet's plantings at Giverny, where he began his garden on his return from the visit to the Riviera. Look, after all, at... Oh, sorry. 
the masses of irises Monet now planted near his path and under his orchard trees at Giverny. So in a way, we don't need to look to England, we don't need to look to Robinson, we don't need to get hung up on whether, oh, did Monet know Robinson, etc., or not. The profusion of the South, we need look no further, in a sense. Uh, Monet planted these irises under his orchard trees. They turn the ground violet blue, as if to make the tree shadows organic and living. And we might compare Robinson talking about that kind of effect in iris colours. But it's also precisely the effect of a carpet of blue that Monet had described ecstatically to his future second wife, Alice Ochdet, on seeing violets under citrus trees in Monsieur Moreno's famous garden at Bordighera on the Riviera in 1884. So he writes to Alice, who's left behind at Giverny, and he asks her to imagine something like a Normandy farmyard, brackets read Giverny, with, instead of apple trees, orange and lemon trees, and instead of grass, palm of violets, the ground is absolutely blue. And there's Monet's painting of that effect at the Moreno Garden on the Riviera. And he writes to Alice, and he says that whilst painting this picture in the Moreno Garden, I thought of you. I have given myself up to the lemon trees in a delicious place. Well, Palmer violets that he saw in the Moreno garden, you see here under the trees, had the meaning in the popular 19th century language of flowers of allow me to love you. And that sentiment was only too relevant for Monet in 1884 on the Riviera. Alice was getting very restive indeed at his long absence. And he desperately sent her almost daily gifts of flowers by rail from the south and was ultimately rewarded. And there's a lovely letter where he says, thank you for the violet you sent me. And he kind of realized, gosh, she, he's, kept, he's kept her on board. So he gets back to Giverny and he begins to plant the garden there on his return from the Riviera. And we get then that carpet of the blue irises, a kind of substitute for the effect he saw with the palmer violets in the south, transplanting to the north then the plenitude of the south. Monet had called the Riviera a terrestrial paradise. But we can also, I think, understand that effect, that garden at Giverny, as a projection of Monet's love for Alice, an embodiment of it, the ultimate attachment environment where planting, painting, and passion came together. It's only logical in turn that Monet's head gardener, Félix Breuil, called one of the irises he developed there, Madame Monet. They could be easily hybridized irises, as I've mentioned. So this new violet, uh, color, this new uh, iris colored a deep violet um, was displayed at the first ever Congress on irises in Paris in 1922. And Monet was, you know, at that point then, busy painting his Grande Décoration, where we get the irises in turn. If we think of irises as flowers that were intimately connected for Monet with his late wife Alice via the carpet of blue in the Clonormand and the Madame Monet hybrid iris, we can understand painting and planting as complementary expressions of emotion. But I want just to finish by saying that the generosity, the extravagance of Monet's wild plantings I think goes far beyond mere Robinsonian theory and takes its place directly alongside the privileging of passion that we've seen in modern artists such as Nolde or Munch even. And in support of this idea, I want to just draw your attention to one more aspect of the passion of planting and painting. 
If it involved extravagance and excess, then those very features were seen um, by Mirbeau as part of the concept of genius. Genius involved being chaotic, breaking boundaries, running wild. And uh, the Japanese artist Hokusai was described as the old man mad about, um, about drawing. So this kind of genius, madness, excess. And Mirbeau located those things, put those ideas together as a direct result of reading a book published in 1889 by the Italian doctor Cesare Lombroso in which genius was linked with insanity, with obsession, hallucination, all these things. Monet ruefully called the water and reflections of his pond an obsession. Mirbeau termed his own passion for flowers a monomania and described a gardener on the front page of Le Figaro in 1890 as a prime example of genius, an artist and poet who could see a world in the single head of an aster. So I don't want to push madness as part of painting and planting too far. Um, Lombroso's theories, for one, have long been discredited. But I think the currency of those ideas at the fin de siècle helps us to rediscover a thread that has often been lost in the story of modern art. In other words, one that directly links, connects Monet and the Impressionists with the emotive floral color of artists such as Matisse and Nolder, in turn also with Roussignol, someone showing the sort of hallucinatory of old Spanish gardens, um, eventually even with Munk as well, where dream hallucination are uh, much involved. So it's a complex story, painting and planting, one that brings us into science, philosophy, literature, politics, as well as the personal, the passionate, and the visionary. But that very complexity and range of reference, I think, is what makes the garden one of the richest stimuli in modern art. The actions involved in making a garden, clays, sowing, planting, potting, etc., that I started with were arguably the very things that in their repetitive mundane practicality created space for the play of the psyche so that when brush was put to canvas, the work of genius emerged. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.